The text for this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through the first part of verse 8. I will be reading it in German. And so you know, as you're listening, the German word for love is Liebe. Wenn ich in den unterschiedlichsten Sprachen der Welt, ja, sogar in der Sprache der Engel reden kann, aber ich habe keine Liebe, so bin ich nur wie ein drohender Gong oder ein lärmendes Becken. Wenn ich in Gottes Auftrag prophetisch reden kann, alle Geheimnisse Gottes weiß, seine Gedanken erkennen kann und keinen Glaube haben, der Berge verstetzt, aber ich habe keine Liebe, so bin ich nichts. Selbst wenn ich all meinen Besitz an die Armen verschenke und für meinen Glauben das Leben opfere, aber ich habe keine Liebe, dann nützt es mir gar nichts. Liebe ist geduldig und freundlich. Sie ist verbissen, sie prallt nicht und schaut nicht auf andere herab. Liebe verletzt nicht den Anstand und sucht nicht den eigenen Vorteil. Sie lässt sich nicht reizen und ist nicht nachtragen. Sie freut sich nicht am Unrecht, sondern freut sich, wenn die Wahrheit sieht. Liebe nimmt alles auf sich. Sie verliert nie den Glauben oder die Hoffnung und hält durch dies zum Ende. Die Liebe wird niemals vergehen. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, good morning. Uh, if you are uh, a pre-K family, kids are dismissed. Uh, so feel free to take care of that as uh, I'm just kind of going through my introduction here. Uh, my name is David Nelson, for those of you who don't know me, and this is my last Sunday here as the pastoral resident here at Trinity. So um, I'll try to save the sappiness uh, for the end of the sermon, but just to say from the jump that uh, I really can't thank you enough for uh, letting me be here, uh, for taking care of Abby and I for the last 18 months or so. Um, this time with you has been nothing like I could have imagined, so just wanted to say thank you. But uh, let me pray for our time together, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into God's Word. Father, you are the God of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we praise you that you have made a people for, your, for yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God, we pray that those people whom you foreknew, whom you predestined, that you would teach them to love by the power of your Holy Spirit. Spirit, be with us as we contemplate your love in the gospel and help us to know you in a new way today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let me say uh, just from the start here, uh, before I actually get to my introduction, that the following introduction is not given because it's my last Sunday here at Trinity, uh, and this is not uh, to win a side bet with somebody on the staff team. Um, but have you guys seen the movie Wedding Crashers? Uh, okay, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. So, uh, as you might know, Wedding Crashers is a movie about two friends who go to weddings they're not invited to in order to uh, meet women. But if you're going to crash a wedding, one of the things you have to do is not just go to the reception when everybody's partying and having a good time, uh, you have to go to the wedding ceremony. And one of the uh, humorous moments at the beginning of the movie, these two friends, Jeremy and John, are sitting in the sanctuary and 
you know, the, the, the service is happening in front of him, and John leans over to Jeremy, and he goes, 20 bucks, the scripture reading for this wedding is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you polled people on the street and asked them to make a bet about what Bible verse would be read at a wedding ceremony, I would guess that most of you, myself included, would bet that it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's not just wedding crashers, but other pop culture references think about this verse as a wedding and romantic love verse. You can think about uh, scenes from The Office or A Walk to Remember or even How I Met Your Mother. But of course, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, one of the things that uh, would be really surprising to you is if Paul suddenly changed his theme in this section that we've been going through from order of service and how things are operating in the Corinthian church to romantic love and weddings. The section we currently find ourselves in, Paul is dealing with the way the Corinthians have been doing services, and they've been addressing things like head coverings and the Lord's Supper and boasting about spiritual gifts rather than using them for the edification of the body. And now we arrive in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul is going to give these faulty Corinthians a lengthy rebuke about what it means to love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us. But perhaps the first thing that we need to see is how vain our actions are without love. So that's where Paul is going to take us first. He starts off by saying, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Has your son or daughter ever asked you to buy them a drum set? Um, I would assume that when they asked that question, the first thing that popped into your head was, no, heck no, I don't want to listen to you try and play the drums. Maybe more, a more sanctified parent would be really excited about this, and they'd be like, oh, sure, honey, go get your drum set. But most of us, people with working ears, would probably say no. And it's not so much because you want them, to, uh, want them to have their feelings hurt or you don't want them to turn into a successful drummer. The problem is, is that period of time in between when they start drumming and when they actually become somewhat decent at it. For example, if Ringo Starr was my roommate and he wanted a drum set, I'd be like, oh yeah, man, go get a drum set. I'd love to listen to you play. But if it's anybody else, if it's my child or a beginner, absolutely not. But Paul's point to us here is this. If you have the gift of tongues, if you can speak in tongues, but you have no desire to use that gift to glorify God or edify the church, then you're nothing more than a two-year-old with a pair of drumsticks. You make a lot of noise, you annoy people, you give us headaches, but you're not helping anyone. If you have the gift of prophecy, Paul continues, and this is interesting too because a week from now we're going to be going through 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says, I love the gift of prophecy. Everybody should try to prophecy, everybody. But here he says, without love, it's a meaningless gift. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, oh, if I can speak into the lives of people like nobody's business, or if I can know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Out of all the examples that Paul gives here at the start of 1 Corinthians 13, this is actually probably the harshest one that he tells us because he says, I can be prophetic knowledgeable, wise, and faith-filled. But without love, I'm nothing. 
I can have the best spiritual gift, be the smartest man on the planet, charge headlong into a hurricane with confidence, but Paul says, without love for God and love for neighbor, I am of no value to those around me. Now, in the interest of clarification here, when Paul says faith, he means faith as it is a spiritual gift, not as an instrument of our salvation. Uh, We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul remarks that some are given faith as their spiritual gift from the Spirit. So it's not like Paul is discrediting faith here, but he's saying, no, if you have the spiritual gift of faith, even if you have this abundant faith without love, you're nothing. Finally, he says this, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. I actually uh, think it's worth pointing out that I think the NIV translate this not as well as you would hope because the word in the Greek for hardship can actually be better translated as burning. So what Paul is actually saying is, if I give away all my possessions... Every clothing article, every coin, every item in my household, and if I give over my body to be burned as if I'm going to be martyred, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. He's probably referencing Jesus' promises to his disciples and to us that we who have left everything to follow him, that when we make sacrifices both with our possessions and with our lives, we are promised heavenly treasure. But Paul says if those sacrifices come without love, you gain nothing. To illustrate this, there's a scene from the second National Treasure movie, and the villain of the movie has to end up sacrificing himself at the end of the movie to save others. They're in this whirlpool-like thing where they're all drowning and someone has to hold the door open so people can escape. And one thing leads to another, and the villain of the movie actually has to be the one to save everybody. And so as Nick Cage and his friends are all fleeing from the, bur- from the crumbling building, the f- villain of the movie yells out, tell the world what I did. Tell them what I did to save you. And the apostle Paul would say, you didn't do anything. Because when you made that sacrifice, even the ultimate sacrifices, you had no love for the people that you were actually trying to help. If I give away or if I sacrifice myself so I can be known as generous or known as a martyr, it is a worthless act. Okay, so why does does Paul start here? Paul starts here because the problem in Corinth, the problem for us in the world today, is that we often focus on the external actions of people, of ourselves, rather than the internal Do not be amazed, Paul says, if someone can speak a knowledgeable word or be generous or even if they die for the faith, because he says, without love, they are of no value. So the question becomes, what what is the love that gives our actions their value? What does love in life look like? Now, before we dive into verses 4 through 8 that explains that, I have to point out to you, um, this is a rebuke. Paul is not, as he's writing these things in white dove release, throwing rice, sparklers going off as the sun sets in the background, romantic wedding, la-la land. That's That's not the context that he's writing these in. Ironically, the best English reading that I've heard of this passage happened at my brother-in-law's wedding. 
Um, and I don't know if Aunt Pat was having a bad day that day or if she didn't like the bride or the groom or something, but she gets up there to read these verses, and she just sounds so upset and angry. <laughs> she gets up there, and she's like, love is patient, and love is kind. It does not envy and it does not boast. And she has like a scowl on her face as she's doing these things. And I'm like, what, what happened to you today? <laughs> and then she, you know, concludes, love never fails. Here ends the reading. That's how she read it. And it's probably not the perfect tone that Paul was using here, but that's probably, there's a little bit more of that intermixed in this. Because if you read through the attributes that Paul names off here about love, the Corinthian church was evidencing none of them. Find an attribute in here that they were evidencing, and I'll gladly be quiet. But were they patient? Were they kind? They couldn't wait for the people to show up before drowning themselves in food at the Lord's Supper, neglecting the poor. Not boasting? They all talked about how cool their spiritual gifts were and how much better they were than everybody else. Not delighting in evil? We talked about in chapter 5 how they're celebrating somebody sleeping with his stepmom. Not self-seeking, not easily angered, they treated the Apostle Paul like garbage. And in 2 Corinthians, they're going to tell him, you know what, we're not listening to you anymore, we're going to listen to these super apostles. That's who we're going to listen to. The Corinthian church was none of these things. And so they, like us today, need to be reminded of what true love looks like. When I say I love someone, when I say I love my neighbor or my friend or my brother or my sister or my mom or, yes, even my spouse, what is that love supposed to look like? And that's where we're going. Notice this, too. The following list that Paul gives is not adjectives, but it's verbs. Yes, love can be a feeling, but it's also in action. Think back to a year ago, we spent time in 1 John and how often it, he would write, if we say we love God and yet blank. It was always an action following that. So what is love? Love, uh, love, Paul says, is patient and kind. Patient, meaning you're ready to bear with other people, ready to uh, wait with them, ready to go through periods of time where that beloved object is really, really annoying to you. Because when you love them, you're patient with them. Love is kind. Love is friendly and generous and courteous and kind. If you do something begrudgingly for someone with a snarl on your face, you might be doing an action for them, but you're not really loving them because you're not being kind as you do it. And we know that experience, right? Like we know what it's like when someone tries to do something for us and they seem upset about it. Oh, hey, Mom, let, let me get that before you. No, you know what? I'll get it for you, honey, because I love you. Anybody had that experience with their mom? Listen, moms, no kid is going to believe you love them if you shout at them. It's just not going to happen. Love, Paul continues, does not envy. If you love someone, you're not jealous of them. You rejoice with them. You know, it's not often that I attend uh, small groups uh, where someone goes, you know, I'm really struggling with jealousy today. Like, that just doesn't really come up. But I think that's more of a prevalent sin than we think it is. Because if we cannot rejoice with somebody, even somebody we don't like, that's probably a sign that we're jealous of them, that we're envying them, and in short, not really loving them. 
It does not boast, Paul says. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. The attitude of the loving person is humble. Humility is a defining characteristic of love because humility, by definition, is thinking less about yourself and thinking more about other people. If you love someone for selfish reasons or if you love someone in order to boast, then you are neither honoring them nor loving them. Think about this. If one of you is on the side of the road with a flat tire, and let's say for the example your cell phone's dead, you can't call AAA, you're, you're out of luck, and I stop by and I help you, and I, I, you know, I bring out the car jack and I lift your car up and I take off the old tire, put on the donut, uh, pay for your meal as you wait for the auto shop to finish repairing your car, and I even pay for your new wheel. If I do all of that for you, and then I come home and I look at my wife and I say, guess how loving I was today? Guess what a good Samaritan I was today? then I didn't really love you as you were on the side of the road. Because what I did was I used you to boast about myself. You know who probably never thought of himself as a good Samaritan? The Samaritan from Jesus' parable. Because love, more often than not, doesn't think it's doing anything special. Love is humble. Paul continues, love is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Not easily angered, we could just say, is the negative way of saying love is patient. So its placement on this list shouldn't really surprise us, but Paul is laboring this point, so maybe we should as well. When Paul says love is patient, when it's not easily angered, that means that your love for someone cannot flip quickly to anger. Love can withstand many wrongs and mistakes before it even arrives at the base of the mountain of agitation. Love is long-suffering. It can take a few punches before it actually throws anything back. And if that's not the way you are with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you're not really loving them. If you're leading a volunteer group and somebody doesn't show up this morning and your first thought is, I'm going to give them a tongue lashing via email because we're Minnesotans and that's how we give tongue lashings here. But if that's your response, you're not really loving them because you were quick to anger. If your brother or sister here says something hurtful to you and your first thought is defensiveness, I'm going to get back at you, you're not really loving them. Moreover, love, and here's a really high calling, keeps no record of wrongs. Do you have anybody in your life that word vomits? Are you a word vomiter? You know when people, they go on and on and on and on and on, and then all of a sudden all of these sins that you thought you were forgiven for get brought back up? Or you bring up the sins of others that you said you forgave of them? You know how humiliating that is for the person who actually did that action to you? Like, I thought we moved past this. I thought I repented and you forgave me and all of that. And so by spilling all of that, you're proving that not only did you not forgive them, but you never really loved them either. Love is able to forgive and it is able to, maybe not forget, but it's certainly able to look past the things that it has forgiven Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. More often than not, this is the verse 
that we can use to prove that the love that people outside of the Christian faith claim to experience is not real love. Because love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. And the Christian faith has a standard for love and truth and evil. We know that God is true, and we know that whatever is not of Him is evil. And therefore, any claim that something is love without honoring to God is not true and not real love. We can almost say, because of this verse, love is uniquely a Christian thing. And this is important for us to be reminded of on June 5th, 2022, because as many of you know, June is Pride Month. And you're going to be hearing various oft-repeated phrases like, love is love and love wins. But if we call love what rejects the truth about God and His commands on our life, which Pastor Brian detailed many weeks ago in his 1 Corinthians 6 sermon, if we reject God and our definition of love, then we're not really loving. It is a lie. But I digress. If love rejoices in the truth, then that means in order for love to be love, then it must be honest with the people that we claim to love, right? We've got to tell the people we love the truth. Love is not gossiping. Love is not flattering. Love is honest. Love calls out sin, but it also calls out injustice. It calls out wrongdoing. It does not simply allow those things to be there, but love says that this is wrong. We do not lie to the people that we claim to love, and we also don't ignore the injustices that they are facing in their lives. We fight for all manner of their protection. And Paul says that next. He says, love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. And finally, love never fails. One of my uh, tendencies as somebody who struggles with anxiety is to not believe that the other person that I'm interacting with has the best intentions in heart. Or when they say something to me that might sound a little iffy, I'm like, oh, were you trying to hurt me or was that an accident? I'm prone to believe the worst about people, even the people who proclaim Christ as their Savior. And that's not right. That's a sin. So when Paul says that love always trusts and love always hopes, he means love is ready to believe the very best about another person. That's what that means. And if you want an example of this, think back to the introduction of this epistle. I know that might have been a long time ago when we first got into this, but, but think about the way that Paul greets them to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be His holy people. I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. That's how he greets them. And then Paul proceeds to write 16 verses, or 16 chapters, throwing open their proverbial closet and dumping out all of the skeletons that he finds. But yet, despite all of this, despite all of their sin, all their moral failings, Paul greets them by saying, no, you are a believer. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You are my spiritual family. When we say that we're loving somebody, we're promising to believe and hope the very best about that person. But finally, love perseveres, Paul says, and love never fails. In order for love to truly be love, it must continue. 
It must not falter. It must not shrink back. It must endure. It must long suffer. It must make it to the very end. But if we're being honest, most of us in this room can probably name more loves that have failed than have succeeded. Friendships have ended. Families have been ripped apart by strife. Marriages end in divorce. Churches split up and die. But Paul says if love is genuine, it'll never fail. It'll not, it won't back away. It won't falter. It'll continue and persevere. And it's at this point in the description, as we look down this list from verse 4 to verse 8, that you might be wondering, have I ever seen love before? This is a high calling to be loving to others. Does love, as Paul described it, even exist? And of course, we know that that cross is the answer to whether or not that love exists. Paul's entire description of love here is found in the attributes of God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in the very good news of the gospel. Run through this list. The good news of the gospel is that despite our sinfulness, despite our failure to love our neighbors, despite our failure to love God, God is patient and kind with us. He gave us the sun to shine on us and rain to fall on us and breath in our lungs, even though we used all of those things to sin against Him. God does not envy, He does not boast, He is not proud. God is humble, and friends, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sakes. God did not dishonor us human beings, but He became incarnate and lived among us. God did not seek His own, but He came for us and for our salvation. God was not easily angered, and He did not keep a record of wrongs because He canceled the record of debt that stood against us at the cross. God did not delight in evil, but plainly told us the truth about who we are and what our true spiritual condition was but he also told us why he came into the world and how he would remedy our sin problem and usher in a day of complete justice in our world. God always protects the sheep of his pasture. He has not lost a single one. Christ always believes and is ready to advocate for us before the Father. Remember when they're praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember that? And Peter falls asleep. What does Jesus say? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That is what it means to believe the very best about somebody. Christ is ready to advocate for us to the Father. His love never fails because not one single thing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is in view of that great love that we lay down this pride and boasting and selfishness and fake love that we proclaim to have, and we pursue real love. And we pursue the love as we see it in Jesus Christ. Love is the way that we image Christ best. We talked about last week how love is, in fact, a form of evangelism. When people see the church loving one another, it's their way of saying, oh my gosh, what's happening here is real. And so when we ask, how do I love my neighbor in truth? We ask, how did Jesus love us? And if we answer that question rightly, it'll lead us to the marvelous attributes that we find in verses 8 or verses 4 to 8. And this is what we ought to be doing daily as people stunned by the image of 
Christ and the grace and love of God in the gospel. That this love is what has captivated our hearts, not our spiritual gifts, not anything we do or how special we are or, or unique we are. Paul says these spiritual gifts, he continues in verse 8, the prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. See, what Paul is doing here at the end of this chapter is shifting the eyes of his readers away from the present gathering that we're experiencing right now to the future gathering that's coming, where the universal church will be gathered together and we will not need to prophesy. We will not need a tongue to declare the wonderful works of God because he'll be, he'll be right in front of us. We'll see him face to face with every tribe, nation, and tongue represented. Right now, Paul says, we're, we're sort of like children. You know, we know a little bit here, we know a little bit there, but we don't know fully. You know, this gathering today, it's sort of like looking in a mirror where we see a reflection, but we can't actually see the real thing. But a day is coming, brothers and sisters, when we will see Jesus and know him truly, even as he truly knows us and loves us now. And on that day, faith will become sight. Think about that. One day your faith will become sight, and the hope that you have now will be realized, and therefore, Paul says, out of faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Because love is the only one of those three that's going to continue forever and ever and ever. The day is coming where love, as we see it and we think about it and know it today, it'll end. And we'll be able to love one another perfectly, completely, without everything that we feel inside of us as we internally wrestle with love. You know, like you feel like the impatience that grows inside of you with somebody? Like that'll be gone. Or think about the cruelty or jealousy that sometimes flames up in your hearts and minds. That, that'll be gone. Our selfishness will die on that day and our cynicism will be knocked over. A day is coming where we will simply enjoy each other's company without any sort of sin lingering. There will not be a people of Trinity City Church. There will not be a people of Centennial Church. There will just be the church of God together, rejoicing, enjoying one another perfectly, completely, and rejoicing with our bridegroom as all this takes place. But until that day comes, my brothers and sisters, I want you to know that I'm going to really miss you. And I'm going to miss your presence. I'm going to miss your smiles. I'm going to miss gathering with the Griggs group on Wednesdays. I'll miss talking about passages with you, getting off track with you guys. Thinking about how every time some new person showed up at our group, we were talking about something inappropriate like uh, marijuana or sex or bidets. And people still stayed, which was great. I'll miss Sunday mornings here. I'll miss coming into the sanctuary and hearing Josiah's angelic singing voice. 
of watching the light streaming in through the stained glass windows, of seeing Tyson's gorgeous artwork out front in the narthex. I still think we should call that the Phipps narthex. <laughs> I'll miss deciding whether the weather is good enough to have post-service coffee and treats outside, of making the coffee, of filling communion trays, hearing about Al's hatred for that little trash bin that we put wrappers and creamer cups in. How many of you don't like that? Just a quick show of hands. Does anybody like hate? Yeah, okay, Al, yeah, yeah. I'll miss Kim wearing brooches and shedding up uh, other fashion trends like the time a couple of weeks ago when all the women at the church wore hats because Brian was preaching on head coverings that Sunday, although I did hear that was Laura's idea. I'll miss preaching here. I'll miss the, the mad scramble that often happened 10 minutes before the service when we were trying to figure out who's doing communion because I'm not an elder, so... We had to figure out who the heck was doing communion that morning. I'll miss wondering whether my jokes will land in the sermon, why some aspects of the sermon landed better than others, why it was the sermons I felt least confident in were actually the ones that were most impactful. I'll miss meeting with the elders and the deaconesses and hearing about their love for all of you and how deeply they care about the health of Trinity. I'll miss meeting with the governance team and pretending like I actually understand any of the legal or financial mumbo-jumbo they were saying. I, I couldn't be a tax guy, man. I just I couldn't do it. I'll miss meeting with the staff team on Monday mornings. I'll miss hearing all the Alexis Rose impersonations when I do something wrong and someone says, Ew, David! I'll miss our camaraderie and our unity, and I pray to God that my staff team is as wonderful and fun there as it was here. But finally, and I, I, he might be upset that I do this, I do want to say thank you and I'll miss you to Brian. I don't see him. Hi, Brian. <laughs> Brother, just want to say thank you for letting me be a resident here. Thank you for showing me what it looks like to lead and pastor a church. Thank you for caring for me and being patient with me, for thoughtfully thinking through and explaining ministry to me, Thank you for trusting me here with the pulpit. I like just started my residency and then a month later, Brian's like, you want to preach? And I'm like, what? Like, you don't know if I'm going to spew heresy? Like, we barely know each other. Like, but above all, thank you for embodying for me what it means to be the same person inside the pulpit as you are outside of it. Thanks for letting me live with you and your family. I mean, I paid you for that, so like, I don't know if that was like a goodness of the heart thing, but um, no, seriously, thank you. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you. Thank you for bearing with me and helping me, encouraging me these last 18 months. I hope you take encouragement from our time together this morning that one day our fellowship and the fellowship of all of our friends who have left this church and even this life will never end. But until that day comes, let us love one another as the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ, has loved us. Ryan, would you come and pray and bring us into a time of communion? Thank you, David, uh, for those. Thank you for those remarks and uh, the sweet words you had to share with this congregation. We appreciate it. I do have a lot of questions about the Griggs community group at this moment. Uh, <laughs> we may have to audit that group in your absence to figure out what in the world you've been doing. Um, 
But seriously, thank, thank you for all that. Uh, before we prep this table and move to a time of responding with song and communion, I want to lead us in a time in light of Pentecost for some of our global and local partners who are participating in starting new churches or training uh, church leaders and church planters to start new churches. As you heard already uh, this morning, this is Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost Sunday commemorates when the Holy Spirit came down on the church and gave birth to the church in the book of Acts. And this is important. The events of Acts 2 mean that we are part of a diverse group of faithful believers that are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we're empowered to share the gospel both far and wide, especially through the establishing uh, of new churches throughout the world. And many of you know this, but just in case you don't, we're part of a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church, and we're also part of a network called Acts 29, and each one of these associations are carrying on what the Lord has started in Pentecost. Each has a mission to start churches and revitalize churches for God's glory and for the transformation of neighborhoods, cities, and the world. In the last 20 years, for example, the Free Church has started 651 churches, and Acts 29 in 2021 welcomed 58 new churches into their network, including 30 of them being brand new churches. And so our church supports the local and global work of the Free Church, the Evangelical Free Church, and Acts 29, but we also partner with very specific people to accomplish these goals both locally and globally. So what I'm going to do right now, uh, before I prep this table, is introduce you to some of these partnerships through prayer. So rather than saying who they are and then praying for them, I'm going to say who they are through praying for them. So keep your ears open as we pray. And honestly, if there's some partnership that you've never heard of before that you didn't know we had and you have more questions, we would love to answer more questions about some of these uh, partnerships that we have uh, throughout our city and all over the world. So let's pray for these churches now. Let's pray. Lord, your word says in Acts 1.8, from the words of Jesus, that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and we will be your witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Lord, that is the same calling for every local church throughout time and throughout the globe. You pour your spirit down on us so that we would be witnesses to your gospel, and we do that right where we're at, in the cities and neighborhoods and regions where we dwell, but we also see to it, Lord, that we see your glory and your gospel witness extend to the ends of the earth. So now we pray, Lord, for some of our specific partnerships with local church plants. We pray for Pastor Trent Zensky, who is starting Emmanuel Fellowship in South Minneapolis. We pray for Carl Johnson and his church, Faith City Church, as well as the grocery store, Storehouse Grocers, that his church started in Dayton's Bluff in St. Paul. We pray for Steve Erickson, who is starting house churches in Highland Park neighborhood of St. Paul. We pray for Pastor Patrick Ray, who is starting Northside Neighborhood Church in North Minneapolis. We pray for Josh Williams, who is starting Restoration Hope Church in West St. Paul. We pray for Andrea Tyson, who serves the Free Church as the Director of Women's Ministry for all of Minnesota's free churches. And she's also on staff with Pastor Marshall Posey, who is starting Living Hope Church in Maple Grove. We pray for the Johnsons, who are ministering to migrant groups in the Twin Cities in hopes 
of starting new Christian communities amongst the, among those who do not worship Jesus. Lord, we are so grateful for these local partnerships, and we praise you for them. We also praise you for our global partnerships. We pray for Will and Sarah Myron, who are starting a new church in Ireland. We pray for Christian Roth, who is starting a new church in Copenhagen, Denmark. We pray for Friday and Karen Umat, who is training pastors and church planters in Kenya. We pray for Tom Steller, who is training pastors and church planters in Cameroon through Training Leaders International as well as Aaron Jamison, who also serves with Tra Training Leaders International and serves by training pastors and church planners among migrant groups in the Twin Cities. We pray and praise you for all these church partnerships, these ministry partnerships, and we trust, Lord, that the same spirit that's at work in our congregation is at work in them, creating a community of gospel witnesses for your glory. And Lord, we know that your desire is that your gospel would be proclaimed among every tongue, tribe, and nation, both locally and globally, because you want to show the world your glory. You want to fill the earth with your glory, and one of the primary ways you do that is by starting new Christian communities who grow and flourish and develop into local churches for your glory. We praise you, Lord in very small but significant ways that our church can be part of your global plan to fill the earth with your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.